Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, it was 24 hours into our honeymoon and Peggy and I had our first argument. You might wonder what in the world would you argue about in 24 hours? Well, it was something as important about whether or not we should have two desserts. Yeah, big stuff, right? You see, I had come from a family where two desserts was unthinkable. And she had come from a family where two desserts, well, if you want to have two desserts, go ahead and have two desserts. And it was at that moment I realized that this whole idea of two people becoming one is difficult and mysterious and can be wonderful. We had two desserts. Well, this morning, as we continue our series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way, Paul's going to address this very issue. How do two people become one? Now, like we've seen in the first six chapters of this book of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians have some pretty messed up views on this whole idea, some messed up views on marriage. And so Paul is writing them, and he's going to show them a better way to do marriage. And if you're following on your notes, let me give you the better way right away. The key to a thriving marriage is oneness. The key to a thriving marriage is oneness. Oneness has been God's design from the very beginning. Now before we look at the passage together, I'm going to mention several things so that we can set the context. First thing I want to say is that chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians really begins a new section in this book because in it, Paul is going to begin to answer some of the questions that the Corinthians had asked him. They had written him a letter and they said, here's several questions we have. And so he's going to start answering them throughout the rest of the book. And the first questions are around this idea of relationships. They ask about, is it better to be single than it is to be married? What is marriage life supposed to look like? And so we're heading into that in chapter 7. And in fact, let me just say this. Chapter 7, Paul intermingles this idea of singleness and marriage all throughout. But here's what we're going to do. This week, I'm going to talk about some of the marriage passages. And next week, Pastor Jeff is going to come and talk about the singleness passage. But here's what I want to say that we need to keep in mind throughout these two weeks. I think this is something we have lost today, sadly. Paul is going to claim that some Christians are called and even gifted to a life of singleness, while others are called to a life of marriage. And the church is healthiest when both of those are equally lifted up and honored by all. The second thing I want to say before we dive in is that the issue Paul's going to address in our passage this morning is going to be kind of specific, and we're going to look at it from a big 10,000-foot view on marriage here, but really, it's the opposite of what the end of chapter 6 was talking about in sexual immorality. You see, as human beings, we have this tendency to go to extremes, you know what I'm talking about? And the Corinthians were doing that very thing. Last week, the extreme was that they were believing that since the body was, quote, less important than the soul or the spirit, they could do anything they wanted with their body. And it was leading to all kinds of sexual immorality in the church, which we defined as any sex outside of the covenant between a husband and a wife. If you were here last week, you know Jeff did a great job showing us that our bodies matter immensely to God. They are the vessels where the temple, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And so God's intention for sex was that it was meant to be in the confines of a marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. So if you missed last week's message, I encourage you, go listen to it. Because it's stuff we need to hear still today. Well, like I said, this week, Paul's really going to address the opposite extreme of that. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 7 up on the screen here. Now for the matters you wrote about, so again, they're writing him about some questions. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting what they are saying here. Now, apparently what happened is that some teachers had come into the church, and far from saying that the body didn't matter, they were saying actually the body was evil. And so you should deny yourself of all things physical. They were teaching this to the Corinthians, even to the fact that if you were married, you should no longer have sex with your husband or with your wife. You should abstain from that. Why? Because it's going to lead you to some new personal holiness and some new level, the new plane of spirituality. This idea has been around for a long time. It's called asceticism denying yourself to the extreme. And so right in this church, can you believe this? You have these two amazing extremes. You have people on the side of sexual license who say, I can do whatever I want with my body. And then you have another extreme of people saying, I'm gonna deny everything of my body. And Paul wants to write to correct both of those views. Sadly, you still see these extremes in the church today. In fact, many times the church has been prudish when it comes to sex. They go to this other extreme of asceticism. I know many Christians who were taught as children that sex is not to be talked about. It's dirty. It's only to be used for reproduction. That is not what the Bible says about sex. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible about it. Read the Song of Solomon sometime. For biblical writers, in the context of marriage, sex is a good thing. A gift God has given us to be enjoyed. In fact, Paul will argue it is essential in order for a thriving, healthy marriage. And so that sets up the context of this. And again, he's going to be talking at first about sex. We're going to be talking about divorce. But within all that, I want us to have the 10,000-foot view, and we're going to look at the two principles we can find in these passages about what a thriving, healthy marriage working towards oneness looks like. So here's what I want to do. Three things. First, I want to talk about what can destroy oneness. Second, I want to talk about what two things are going to lead us towards oneness. And then at the end there, I want to talk about why having a thriving marriage matters. In fact, there's really a double meaning to the title of the message today. It's called Marriage Matters because Paul is going to address several marriage matters. But then in the end, we're going to see how he wants to show us how marriage matters in the church. So, obviously, a lot to cover here, a lot of sensitive issues to cover here. Can we once again bow our heads and pray and ask God to be a part of our time? Lord, I have no way of knowing where each individual person in this room is when it comes to an issue like marriage and sex and divorce. I do know there's a lot of pain and hurt and confusion, and I also know that though I can't speak individually to every situation, you sure can. And so that's what we're asking today. We're asking for your Holy Spirit to be in this place. We know you already are. But that as we open up these difficult ideas, that you would reveal what you want us to see this morning. We pray this for your name and for your sake. Amen. Well, 
If you open up a newspaper today or you turn on the TV, now I know none of you open up newspapers anymore, so maybe a better idea would be if you turn on your computer and go to your news website or turn on the TV, it doesn't take long to see that the institution of marriage is under attack right now. And yet here's what I want to say. The social or the political or even the religious forces attacking marriage doesn't come close to the number one enemy of marriage since the time Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Any guesses? If you're on your notes, the primary enemy of oneness in marriage is selfishness. Period. Now, selfishness is just another form of pride, right? Pursuing what is best for me instead of what is best for us. That's the enemy of marriage. That's the enemy of oneness. As I've already mentioned, in this church, selfishness was showing itself in two ways. First, as we've seen earlier in the previous chapters, it was seen in sexual license. At its core, sexual license is selfish because it's tearing apart the oneness that God designed in the marriage relationship. So whether it was the man committing adultery with his stepmother in chapter 5, you remember that? Or whether last week it was men and women going to the temple to visit prostitutes, the Corinthians... We're breaking the oneness that God intended for them to have in their marriage relationships by going outside of the boundaries God had intended. Modern marriages fall victim to the same kind of selfishness. There's adultery, there's pornography, which one commentator I read calls the temple prostitution of our day, along with other anonymous, quick, easy, culturally acceptable ways to get sexual satisfaction from someone besides your spouse. I might also add, that this kind of selfishness can happen with our own spouse when we treat them as a body instead of a person. Jeff talked about this form of selfishness last week, so I won't say much more, but if you're on your notes, their selfishness rears its head, number one, when we cross God's boundaries into sexual license. That's one of the ways oneness is destroyed in marriage. A second way, though, is what this text is all about. And again, number two there, if you're on your notes, it's when we withhold love and affection from our spouse. That's another form of selfishness. Now, again, I want us to remember the context before we jump into these verses. There are teachers teaching people in the church that actually they're going to reach some new spiritual plane by withholding their bodies from their spouses. And so Paul is directly writing to to that situation here. And notice what he says in verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In other words, stop going to those two extremes. Don't go out of the boundaries that God has established into sexual immorality, but don't withhold sex either. Sex is meant to be enjoyed and shared in the context of a marriage relationship. It's literally the physical act of two people becoming one. But can this kind of withholding still happen in marriages today? Absolutely. And it's not just about sex, right? We can withhold ourselves, we can withhold love and affection, and we do that in order to get the upper hand. Or we do that to perhaps punish or leverage or manipulate or control our spouse. We withhold ourselves in different areas of love and affection. And Paul says that will break oneness. This withholding form of selfishness is way beyond sex. It touches every area of marriage. In fact, I have called it the cycle of selfishness. 
See if you recognize it. It starts off pretty innocently. Nobody enters into marriage thinking I'm going to be selfish in this marriage. But what happens over time is, oh, she didn't say that thing I wanted her to say, and so I'm not going to do that thing that, I, that she wants me to do. He doesn't meet this need that I've told him I want him to meet, so I'm not going to say that thing I know that he likes me to say. Fill in the blanks here, whatever it is, but over time we find ourselves in this cycle of pride and unwillingness to meet our spouse's need. It's the cycle of selfishness. If you're married, you've been in it. And so if you're on your notes here, the cycle of selfishness causes pride and eventually bitterness. We build up scars over time. And as those scars build up, we begin to withhold ourselves even more. But that's a self-serving view of marriage. And if we let it continue unchecked, you know what happens? Two people who are intended to be one start acting like two. And it leads to breakdown and destruction and pain and hurt. And so what's a better way? How do we defeat this cycle of selfishness? Well, that's what Paul wants to talk about, and he's going to use sex as an example. But again, the principle here is way bigger than just sex. Look at what he writes in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now read verse 4 out loud on your notes with me there. It says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Yikes! So glad I get to be the one to say that today, right? This is not a popular word today. My body is my body. I'll do with it whatever I want, but Paul says, no, the better way in marriage, if you're on your notes, to pursue oneness comes through selfless service. Yielding my body, yielding my life, yielding my heart mutually for the benefit of the other person in a society where we are taught at the moment we are born that happiness comes by pursuing my needs and my wants and my desires. This goes completely against that. You're telling me I'm to lay down my life my body, my selfishness, my pride for the sake of my spouse. That's what I'm telling you if you want oneness. Let me break these verses down a little bit here. Far from being a puritanical prude, Paul says that married couples actually have a responsibility to satisfy each other's sexual needs. And again, other needs as well. This is very strong language he uses. We can't get around it. The term duty refers to a debt that we owe this person. Jesus uses this word in Matthew twenty two twenty one when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So using that imagery in marriage, Paul is saying husbands and wives faithfully render to each other what they promised when they stood before one another and issued covenant to have and to hold. So this means that sex and affection and love can never be used as a bribe. Or it shouldn't. It's not a reward for good behavior, nor is it to be withheld as a threat or a punishment. 
Husband and wife alike are to be equally, mutually sensitive to each other's emotional and physical needs. This doesn't mean sex on demand, nor does it mean I can withhold myself from my spouse. Paul's vision of sex is that it is to be a way to joyfully serve your spouse. Not a grudging duty, but a joyful opportunity. Now the way we do that is by remembering that our bodies do not belong to ourselves, they belong to our mate. Again, talk about a radical idea today. Using strong language in verse 4, he says we are to yield to one another in this way. Husbands giving authority of their bodies, of their hearts, of their souls, of their minds, over to their wives. And wives doing the same. We bristle at this today. But really, it's a beautiful picture of God's design for oneness when rightly understood and rightly applied. It's the same picture Paul paints in another passage on marriage in Ephesians 5. Let's read this out loud together. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the picture. Mutual submission to one another. I have to say, by the way, in a patriarchal society like Corinth was, where women were often treated as second-class citizens which sadly still happens today, this is radical, radically progressive. Maybe it doesn't feel that way, but what Paul is stating here is that men and women have equal rights in the marriage relationship. Imagine what our church would look like if each spouse was always looking out for the interest of the other. Can you imagine that? With one spouse joyfully giving himself to his wife, another spouse joyfully giving herself to her husband. This is the key to breaking the cycle of selfishness. And man, it's tough. Because it requires us laying aside our selfishness and our pride. It is going to require all kinds of forgiveness and all kinds of grace. Paul only gives one exception to this rule in verse 5. He says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Husbands are to only deprive one another by mutual agreement for a time. Likely, Paul has in mind here setting aside a season of fasting and prayer so that we can focus on the Lord. But again, he says that's to be done in mutual consent. And it's only to be for a time. Why? Because he knows that this is one of the areas in a marriage that Satan can get his grasp on. Simply put, we're in trouble in our marriages if we deprive our partner of sexual intimacy and other forms of intimacy as well, unless we agree upon it. So let's step back for a moment here, and let's look at the bigger principle that Paul is getting across here. Again, not just about sex. A healthy marriage is maintained, friends, when, if you're following on your notes, we put each other's needs before our own. That's the principle. A healthy marriage is maintained when we put each other's needs before our own, and that is expressed through selfless service, giving myself joyfully and gladly, fully, to my spouse. You see, that's what love is. That's what real love is. Now, before we move on to the second principle, I feel like I need to pause here and say something very important. There have been many people who have abused this text. And I've caused a lot of hurt and a lot of destruction. 
And so I'd say to you, if you're hearing this and your immediate thought is, I'm going to use this as a power play over my spouse, which many men have done to their wives, using the Bible as a weapon, I would say to you, you don't get it. You don't understand what Paul is writing here at all because the minute you use this in a manipulative way, you're not loving your spouse selflessly, which is the principle Paul is getting across. You are becoming demanding. And as we're going to see in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, love is not demanding. It does not insist on its own way. It does not seek at its own advantage. It always seeks to please the other. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is that how you're loving your spouse? Some of you need to repent of the way you've treated your spouse. Repent just means I'm going to change my mind about this. I'm going to turn. I'm going to live a different way. You have been selfish and you know it. Not selfless. And I'll just say, that can come out in two ways. It's what we're talking about here. It can come out in a demanding spirit, but it can also come out in a withholding spirit. Saying, I'm not giving in. I'm not going to be the one to break that cycle of selfishness. I'm going to withhold my love and affection from my spouse, and I'm going to teach him or her a lesson. Both of those things will not lead to oneness in marriage. They will break the marriage apart. And so if you're following, love is not demanding, nor does it withhold. I'm well aware that any time we talk about sensitive issues like this, there are probably a thousand questions right now and a thousand individual situations that need individual counseling and wisdom. But generally speaking, as I approach this text, here's my assumption. We want to pursue God-honoring, healthy marriages. And so here's the idea, the principle Paul is getting across in this. If you're on your notes, marriages thrive when we seek to serve in sacrificial love. Marriages thrive when we seek to serve the other in sacrificial love. How are you doing if you're married with that? Are you laying down your life for your spouse? In verses 7 through 9, Paul starts talking about the gift and calling of singleness. And like I said, Jeff is going to talk about this next week. So let's skip down to verse 12 or 10, where Paul's going to address some other questions the church at Corinth had. Specifically, these questions have to do with divorce. What do you do in extreme difficulties in the marriage relationship? Is divorce ever permissible? What happens if I'm married to a non-Christian? Do I get a divorce then? Now, we need to remember as we go into this, Paul is not writing a treatise on divorce. There's more that needs to be said here. But he's answering several specific questions this church had for him. And more importantly, within these questions, we're going to pull out the second key to having a thriving marriage of oneness. Okay? So the first question is, they ask, is divorce okay between two Christians? And again, My assumption is the question comes from this context of these teachers coming into the church and teaching that your body is evil. And so some of them are saying, well, if my body's evil, maybe I just need to separate my body completely from my marriage relationship. And to that, Paul answers in verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Discussing divorce, the first thing Paul does is remind his readers that what he's about to say is not his teaching. He is directly quoting the Lord. That's why he says, not I, 
but the Lord. What teaching is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the teaching that has been since Genesis 2, that Jesus confirmed in Mark chapter 10. We see it up here. Here's the teaching. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Christian couples should not give in to the destruction of divorce, but do everything in their power to nurture and build their relationship on the ideal of commitment. And that's really the second principle we're going to see throughout all these, 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 uh, these questions they're asking him. If you're on your notes there, oneness in marriage comes through unbreakable commitment. Naturally, this raises a lot of questions, especially with the divorce rate in our society reaching 50% and the church not far behind. And just like the topic of sex, this is way bigger and more complex than I could possibly cover in one message. But I think it is important for us to say this. Paul is reaffirming God's original design for marriage, which is permanency. If you're on your notes, Paul affirms God's original design, permanency. Now let me just say this. If this is a subject you need more teaching on or you need more counseling on, Just one year ago today, Pastor Jeff, on May 7th, 2017, in our series in Luke, talked about divorce, and he talked about all the other situations and addressed all those things. So if you want to go back to our website and listen to that message, I encourage you to do that. I just want to add this. As a church, we want to be able to talk about these things, but we want to be able to talk about them full of grace and truth. And so we don't deny the truth that God's ideal for marriage is a lifelong commitment But we also recognize as a church, right, that this world is full of sin. And so there's grace here. God can restore even brokenness. So even the healthiest marriages are tainted by the effects of sin. Commitment is such a challenging task. But it doesn't mean that's not what we strive for. So we pursue all other options if we're married before we pursue divorce. Why? Because that's God's design. And that's how we remain one. Now the second question he addresses is, what about if I'm married to an unbeliever? Great question. What do I do in that case? Now again, context here. Paul came into the city of Corinth. Nobody had ever heard about Jesus. And he begins preaching about Jesus. And people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then they go home and their spouse wants nothing to do with it. And so their question for Paul is, well, what do I do if that's the situation? Should I stay with my unbelieving spouse? And again, within the context of what these false teachers are teaching, you can understand where they're coming from. Am I being defiled? Is my body being defiled by being married to somebody who's not a Christian? Maybe it's even my Christian duty to get a divorce in this situation. To that, Paul answers in verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, And by the way, when he says that, I used to think, is he just giving his personal opinion on this matter? Can we sort of discard what he's about to say here? No, that's not what's going on here. He's just saying Jesus never directly spoke about this, but now as an apostle called by Jesus Christ, here is what the Holy Spirit is telling me to write to you. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. 
Now read verse 14 on your notes with me. It says, For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. And so in the case of a Christian married to a non-Christian, Paul's answer is what? Once again, it's commitment. Commitment. Why? He argues that if you're willing to stay with your unbelieving spouse, there are some potential blessings that could take place. Now here's what I think is so cool here. When Paul talks about the spouse being sanctified or your children being holy, that doesn't mean that they're automatically saved just because you're a believing mother and your, your children are your children, or that you're a believing spouse and your spouse isn't a believer. It doesn't mean they're automatically saved. We know that because of what verse 16 says. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, this is what's cool. These false teachers have infiltrated the church, arguing that their bodies are evil and so that they should separate, that they're going to defile one another, and Paul basically reverses that whole idea. I think where this false teaching might have come in is that in the Old Testament, books like Leviticus, you know, you're told things like, if you touch a corpse, you're unclean. If you eat certain foods, you're considered unclean. And so I can just imagine these teachers going, if you're married to a non-Christian, you're unclean. And Paul says, uh, actually, I'm going to reverse that whole thing. As a Christian, you have the potential to be an incredible blessing to your unbelieving spouse. If you're following on your notes there, a Christian can positively influence their spouse and children. You see examples of this in the Bible. Laban's household was blessed because of Jacob. Potiphar's household was blessed because of Joseph. So too, a non-Christian mate can be blessed because of their Christian spouse. Same with children. Of course, the greatest blessing and hope is that by exposure to the person and to the message and testimony of their lives and their faith in Jesus Christ, that one day that unbelieving spouse might also come to salvation. That's the hope. That's the prayer. I gotta say, I've gotten to see that in our very own church midst, and it's amazing. That's why Paul ends this in verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The same holds true for our children. And so, in the case of a person married to a non-Christian, and by the way, I have to say this today, this is assuming that you became a Christian when you were already married. We're not talking about missionary dating here or missionary marriage. But in the case where that happens, Paul encourages commitment and hope. Last question they have for him then. What happens if the non-Christian spouse chooses to leave? Well, Paul answers that in verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves... Let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And so in the case of abandonment, and I just want to say very clearly that in my opinion, abandonment includes ongoing, unrepentant, unremorseful abuse. Paul says in those situations, divorce is an option. After you've worked through all the other options, after you've tried this commitment thing, if that's the situation, if abandonment is the situation, then you are free to leave that bond. Again, way more to say here, right? I had to point you again to Jeff's message. So as we close now, I know this is a lot to take in. I know this is a lot of information, but let's not lose the forest through the trees. 
It's easy to get lost in all our questions and individual situations, but I think Paul wants to communicate to us something bigger about marriage and why it matters. And here's what it is, in my opinion, if you're on your notes. Marriage is meant to be a model of Christ's love for his church. The church in the scriptures is called the bride of Christ. And so marriage is meant to be a model of how Jesus has loved us. So let me ask you, how does Jesus love us as the church? We'll just look at those two principles again. He loves us with sacrificial, selfless service, and he loves us with an unbreakable commitment. That is why marriage matters. Marriage matters because our marriages can be a mirror for people to see Christ's love, including our spouses. What's incredible here, though, as hard of a word as some of this is sometimes, is that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he didn't first do for us. Think about how shocking God's commitment is to us. We are an adulterous people. We constantly turn our backs on God, and yet he continues to pursue me in unbreakable love, an unbreakable commitment. He is full of mercy and grace for me. And so this gets so much bigger. My marriage can fulfill its purpose when I display that same kind of unbreakable commitment with my wife. I can model Christ's love to me and the church when I model that commitment. Friends, as a pastor for 16 years now, it's my observation that many cases today, couples call it quits long before they reach any sort of biblical grounds for separation or divorce, irreconcilable differences, personal happiness, or I just don't love you anymore aren't biblical reasons for divorce. And so if you're thinking of throwing in the towel, I just say don't. Unless it's some of these other things we've been talking about. Listen, stand still. Refuse to retreat. Look to Christ, who has committed himself to you as your example. Get help. C.S. Lewis once described marriage like the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I first was like, what? But tell me if this isn't true. Every marriage is going to go through times of death and hardship. But if you're willing to commit through it, there can be a resurrection. There can be new life. We can model Jesus' example to us when we commit ourselves in that way. How countercultural would that be? Second, let's be people who model Christ's selfless service. Jesus was not self-serving. He was completely selfless. He placed our needs above his own. He's completely other-focused. He keeps no record of wrongs. There's no cycle with Jesus. He does not demand, nor does he withhold. In fact, for the joy set before him, he offered his life. And now he says to us, follow me. Follow my example in all your relationships, not just marriage. Follow my example. Christians can selflessly serve their spouses because Jesus selflessly served his bride, the church. And so even when it's difficult, I say to myself, it's the better way because it's the way of Jesus. So if you're following on your notes there, Jesus loves us with an unbreakable commitment and selflessness. And he says, I will help you do the same in your marriage. 
Those words are important here because none of us can do this on our own strength, amen? In my flesh, I'll fall right back into the cycle of selfishness. But the promise of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit is now in me. He's my hope. And so as I look to submit to him, he will show me how to do these things. Friends, as we close, here are two questions for you to consider if you're married. And if you're not married, as one of the pastors of this church, let me just say to you, would you pray for the marriages of this church? We need that. We're going to have a time to take communion and reflect. So here's two questions for you to reflect on. First, how am I contributing to the cycle of selfishness? How am I contributing to the cycle of selfishness? Notice it says, I. Not how is my spouse contributing to the cycle of selfishness, which I know we're all thinking right now, right? Oh, I hope he hears this. I hope she's paying attention today. No, no, no. How am I, Lord? Contributing to the cycle of selfishness. If God's design for our marriage is oneness, what do I need to confess of and repent? Change in our marriage. I got to tell you, sometimes I'm glad for the passages that I'm assigned to teach on, and other times I'm not so glad. But this has been a a wonderful opportunity for me to examine my life and our marriage this week. Peggy and I have had some amazing conversations And we've both been able to say, here's some ways that we've contributed to this cycle in our marriage. Let's talk about what we need to change and how we do that. That's my prayer for you. Maybe this can lead you to some really important conversations where you peel back the scars that have been built up over the years. And you extend grace and forgiveness to one another. God's mercies are new every day. The second question is, what does it look like for me to model Christ's love? Again, most important word in that sentence, me. Are you thinking of throwing in the towel? What does it look like to commit to working through it instead? Are you realizing you're selfish? Welcome to the club. How can you selflessly begin to serve your spouse? In fact, what would it look like for that to be a joy? To be able to offer yourself to him or to her. Do you think that would lead to oneness? I sure do. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.